what it means to be American, what it means to immigrate here. It's, it's being, everything is sort of being painted in a very negative light. And this ideal of coming to this country, working hard, if you believe you're American, then you are American. I feel like that's being challenged. Hello and welcome to Immigrantly, a podcast that explores the intersectionality of racial identity, culture and class through the lens of immigrant experiences. Before we begin our episode, a quick reminder that we have GoFundMe. Please donate whatever amount you are comfortable with. Your donations help us keep the lights on here. Every dollar counts. You can get the link on our website at immigrantlypod.com. And now to our guest for the show. Farah Katwari's career has spanned different industries, including interior design, retail, merchandising, marketing, and philanthropy. She serves as a board member of the Westchester County Human Rights Commission, steering committee member of Indivisible Westchester, New York, committee member of Human Rights Watch, New York, and she's also on the board of Refugees International. And guess what? She's a podcaster. She hosts Westchester Indivisible Podcast. Welcome to the show, Farah. So excited to have you here. Hi, Sadia. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. So we'll start with your parents. Your dad, who's a successful entrepreneur, he immigrated to the U.S. in 60s as a student. And then your mom joined him later. In fact, they got married on, I think, phone it yes, was, right? that's right. So can you talk a little bit about their journey to the U.S.? Sure. Uh, my parents were both born in Sirinagar, Kashmir. And um, my father came in 1965 as a student to go to graduate school. And my mother did come three years later after they were married. And they were married over the telephone because my father wasn't able to go back to India to get to Kashmir. Why? I'm not 100% sure, but he was not granted permission to return to India at the time. And... um, It's possible it's because when he was in Kashmir, he was a student activist and talking about freedom for Kashmir and freedom um, from oppression from the Indian government. So they didn't really care for that. And when he left to come to the States, he when he arrived here, he was considered stateless. Mm -hmm. And so for some reason, he wasn't granted a visa to go back. Uh, He was also a student, and they were married over the telephone. Um, And it was the first time that that had happened that we know of. And so my mother came a few months after they were married and joined him in Brooklyn. So we'll talk about Kashmir and the situation in Kashmir right now, but let's focus a bit on your family and culture at home. You were born in Westchester, New York, in New Rochelle. You grew up here. Um, What was the culture like at home growing up? Well, my parents, when they came to the U.S., um, decided that they were American and that we were American. And so the culture at home was that we are proud to be American and we're proud of our Kashmiri heritage, culture, family, and traditions. And so it was a very seamless blending of the two. And my parents made it very clear that they respected all of the very good qualities of this country. And that's what drew them here, freedom, 
liberty, freedom of expression, the rule of law, democracy, the right to partake and the privilege to partake in that democracy. And so that's what they taught us. And at the same time, they taught us about the history of Kashmir, the heritage, very proud of the music, the food, the culture. And we went back every summer to visit family. We had a house there. So for us growing up, we didn't have um, a conflict between the two. It was just a very seamless blending of American and Kashmiri culture. Did you feel a heightened sense of identity crisis? Because what I've heard is that kids of immigrants, Mm -hmm. they have this heightened sense of identity crisis versus other kids. And I see that with my children as Mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. Were there any moments where, you know, because you were straddling two worlds. Right. Were there any moments where it was difficult to reconcile two cultures Mm -hmm. and you didn't find it easy to understand some of the cultural norms that your parents were practicing Mm -hmm. or they brought from Kashmir? Right. I wouldn't say crisis, but Hmm. there were definitely conflicts. And most of those conflicts, uh, for me, um, were manifested in social situations. So, for instance, being in high school and saying, Mom, I've been invited to this party. And she would say, will there be boys there? (laughs) And I said, yes, there will be boys there. And she said, well, you can stay until 9 o'clock and then I'll come and pick you up. And I had to leave and none of my friends could understand why do I have to leave the party at 9 o'clock. These kinds of things, Um, you know, having to be at home at night, not being allowed to go roam around. Um, or even go to the movies late, not being able to sleep over friends' homes. Uh, my parents were very protective, and I do think that's part of the cultural background of, of, of South Asia in general. So I wouldn't say crisis, but conflict in all of these, in, in many social interactions, Some, you know, having to dress a certain way, hmm. behave a certain way. And I wouldn't say I couldn't reconcile it. I just sort of accepted that that's the way my parents are, and that's that's the culture that they grew up in. And when I'm in that environment with other people from the same culture, this is just the way it is. So whether I agreed with it or I disagreed with it or I was frustrated because I couldn't do what my friends were doing, I just accepted that that's the way it was. Looking back, Farah, do you appreciate what your parents were doing at the time and how much has it influenced your own understanding of parenting style and how much Mm -hmm. have you incorporated into your parenting style because you are a parent now? Yes, I am. I I appreciate what they did. I know it was from a place of being protective. And for them, you know, this was a new country for them and they were parents for the first time and in a country that was new to them, you know, relatively speaking. They didn't have family around them, so they didn't have that support. So I understand where they came from. Do I think they were overprotective? Yes, I do, (laughs) for sure. And I wouldn't repeat that with my children, and I don't. But I find things sneaking in. I'll say things to my kids, and I'm like, oh my God, that's, that's what they would say, or it comes from there. And I would say compared to my peers, I'm more protective. Huh. And I do think that comes from them. But I'm not I'm not as worried as as they were and, and definitely give my children I mean they're young, but I give them more freedom. I think, than than I had. So you mentioned you used to go back to Kashmir every year. Mm -hmm. What were those visits like? What do you remember visiting Kashmir? What are some of your childhood memories when you used to visit Mm -hmm. Kashmir? Those were, I think, the best summers of my life. Mm -hmm. 
and golden years of my childhood. So we would leave. The day school got out, we were on the plane the next day with our mom. And we came back, I think, the day before school started. So we had a good almost three months there. And my memories are wonderful. It was a beautiful place. Um, you know, this was in the 80s. And then it's beautiful naturally, you know, the mountains and the lakes and and the flowers. And we had so much family and we were so close with them. And it was a wonderful feeling of belonging and of, of having roots. And as much as, you know, we grew up believing America is our home, and it is, and I'm American and this is my country, it was a special feeling to be able to go there and be with the family because we didn't have much family here. And it was it was lovely. Our grandparents were there and it was peaceful and we would go hiking every summer and go on Dal Lake on a shikara and walk around, eat good food, sit with our cousins in the garden and play cards. So it was a time it was a time of peace. Even though there you know, we knew that there were political issues all along, just personally as a family, as as human beings, it was a very peaceful, beautiful time. When was the last time you went? Uh, 12 years ago. 12 years 2007, ago. yeah. And did you stop going consistently before that? I did. So, as you know, a militancy started in Kashmir um, in 1990. Mm. And it uh, not only became difficult to go there because it was the situation was not safe, but I have only been granted a visa to go to India a handful of times since 1990 by the Indian government. And um, why do you think that's the case? I think in the beginning it started because when, you know, the Kashmiris picked up arms and started fighting the Indian um, armed forces, the India responded um, with a brutal crackdown and committed a lot of human rights abuses. And we spoke out about that. You know, we were shocked. We were traumatized here in America and we spoke out about it. And at that point they stopped giving me and others visas to go visit. So since, so I think that's why, really. And so since 1990, I've only been there, I think, four times. And it was not easy to get the visa. And it was given for like three or four months. And so that's why I haven't been in 12 years. I did apply again this year and was rejected. So let's talk about the situation in Kashmir. You've been very vocal about it on Twitter and other platforms. Mm -hmm. It's been a month since lockdown was imposed in Kashmir and residents are trying to resist Indian government's move to revoke Article 370. For those listeners who don't know what that is, Article 370 of India's constitution basically guaranteed special rights to the Muslim-majority state of Kashmir, including right to its constitution and autonomy to make laws on all except matters of defense, communications, and foreign affairs. Since last month, India has sent even more, like thousands of additional troops to the already highly, highly militarized region. It has imposed crippling curfew, cutting telecommunications and internet. And there is this brutal crackdown. Kids are being detained. We recently heard about a kid who was killed, um, Asrar Ahmed Khan. Um, he was hospitalized for almost a month. He was injured on August 6th and he died yesterday. So Farah, how, as, as a Kashmiri American, uh, American of Kashmiri descent, 
what do you think is going on and do you and i believe you have family still there mm-hmm. and how are they dealing with this atrocious situation and what are your thoughts on all that's going on in kashmir right now i'll start with the personal i do have a lot of family there and we have not been able to speak to them for 30 now what is it 35 days i think my mother got through um twice by chance to her sister and was able to find out that she's all right but we haven't been able to hear from all of the family and even within kashmir they cannot call each other to find out how they're doing because the landlines and the cell phones are cut and um this is how it is for most people they cannot call their families and they have not been able to speak to their families for over a month you know people have elderly parents they have relatives who are ill or even if they don't just not knowing what's happening is terrifying for so many people what's happening now is a real egregious violation i would say and crisis and it's um it's not happening in a vacuum there have been 30 years of a cycle of violence in kashmir and kashmiris have really been suffering but the pop problem does go back 70 years to the mm. partition of indian pakistan and i don't know how much you want to get into the details but what we've seen in the last month is a real breakdown of indian democracy and you know india is the largest democracy in the world and was based on principles of secularism and pluralism and we know that that's that hasn't been the reality on the ground all of these decades and certainly for kashmiris that has not been the reality um they have not enjoyed that uh that how sense. has it been different for kashmiris It's been different for Kashmiris and it's been different for minorities across India. So, but I I can only speak to the Kashmiri or try to speak to the Kashmiri experience to 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 bring their voices here because they can't speak for themselves. I mean just going back to 1947 in Kashmir, you know, you had um, rigged elections, you had people placed in power by the government of India to to stay loyal to them. And then in the last 30 years with the militancy, the the violence and there has been violence on all sides mm. and many people have suffered militants have committed human rights abuses kashmiri pandits were forced out of their homes uh the indian army cracked down very brutally on kashmiris and one of the biggest problems we have in kashmir is this armed forces special powers act um which has been in effect all these decades which basically gives indian armed forces impunity to do anything to do anything they're not held accountable then they don't have to be held accountable and they know it the supreme court of india even challenged it and had a special human rights committee who said that this should be rescinded and the government didn't respond actually so this um special forces act has been a tool of oppression for the last well at least 30 years i mean so now what we see with this kind of a shut down you know an internet has been shut off in kashmir periodically i think it was 52 times this year before august 5th mm. and um so that that happens um but this complete shutdown has never happened before and i think it's really unheard of for a democracy to do something like this to completely cut off 7 8 million people from not only the rest of the world but from each other and this is happening in other parts of india not 
the kind of shutdown and the kind of crackdown that's happening in Kashmir, but uh, other human rights violations. And that's basically most, some people would attribute that to the current government, uh, which is a Hindu nationalist government. And do you feel betrayed by um, Indian government as a Kashmiri? Well, I'd like to say that because I'm a person who stands up for human rights everywhere, I would like to say that there are human rights abuses across the South Asian region in all of the countries, Mm -hmm. Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Mm -hmm. and others. And so when I see that anywhere, I will stand Mm -hmm. up for that and stand up against that, against that abuse of power. As a Kashmiri American... Do I feel betrayed by the BJP? No, because I'm not surprised. And because the role of India in Kashmir over the last 70 years has been one of uh, like an occupying force and oppression. So it's not a surprise to me. Maybe things were a bit better before. Obviously, things were better before we had an armed insurgency, which, you know, this whole cycle of violence has devastated the place. And violence is never an answer. Hmm. And we are never going to achieve peace, freedom through What would peace look like in Kashmir if I were to ask you as a Kashmiri-American who has family in Kashmir, Mm -hmm. who used to visit Kashmir Mm -hmm. every year Mm -hmm. during his summer break, what would peace look like if if you were given a chance to have that peace? I mean, I don't want to comment on political resolution, but demilitarization of the area. It is the most highly militarized zone in the world in the whole world. It's Doctors Without Borders has said that Kashmiris are amongst the most psychologically affected people in the world. And this is not Syria. This is not Rwanda. You know, this is Kashmir, which nobody pays attention to. Demilitarization within the Kashmir Valley and along the borders, you know, India and Pakistan, this is their Kashmir is their soccer ball that they're kicking back and forth. Do you think, are you hopeful that at some point in future there will be a referendum or a plebiscite? Is that hope still there for Kashmiris? Because that's something that was stipulated in UN Security Council resolutions. That's mm-hmm. something that was supposed to happen. It hasn't happened. That's right. Um, but is that something that you you hope would happen and let Kashmiris decide whether they want to live with India or be with Pakistan or just be an independent entity. Yeah. Well, the fact is those UN resolutions exist and the international community promised the people that they would have that right to self-determination. So I think it's important to mention it and to stress it. At the same time, what does that look like? What will the options be? Because when those resolutions were passed, it was binary, India or Pakistan. Now, is that still relevant? You know, you have part uh, in Pakistan, you have part in India, you have part in in China. There are five distinct regions with distinct languages and cultures. So it's complicated. But yes, those UN resolutions exist, and the people should have the freedom to decide their, their future. Are you disappointed in how international community has responded to crisis in Kashmir? Are you surprised at all? Over the last month? Yeah, over or? the last month. I am surprised at the attention that it has received in the U.S. We have 17 representatives from Congress so far who have made statements in support of Kashmir and the lifting of the shutdown and return to 
democracy and and human rights and resolution to the conflict let's not let's not fool ourselves that just ending the shutdown is is the mm. solution itself that's a that's just something that needs to happen most kashmiris are used to the world not paying attention and not listening and it's very isolating and this is a chance for us to try and bring the kashmiri voice and lift it up so we're doing the best we can and for and you're right i mean i've seen coverage by new york times and washington post and i've been pleasantly surprised because they've been consistently paying attention to crisis uh we have anga session coming up it mm-hmm. starts on september 17th september 18th that's un um general assembly session that mm-hmm. starts soon and prime minister uh, narendra modi of india will be addressing un uh, general assembly i believe on september 27th we'll try to release your episode before that okay. um just to create more awareness and let people know um what kashmiris or kashmiri diaspora is thinking but is there a message that you have for the international community and what what are your expectations from that what what do you mm-hmm. be, want the international community to address during anga session right well first of all i think the international community needs to hold india responsible to its own constitution and its own claim to be the world's largest democracy mm-hmm. number 1 and number 2 kashmir is an international issue it is not an internal issue of india and it is not a bilateral issue between india and pakistan it is an international issue where kashmiri voices need to be at the center it is in the middle of two nuclear armed powers who have already been to war twice over kashmir and that possibility is always there mm. and the third thing is the suffering of the kashmiri people of all of the people there is real has been ignored has been traumatizing and so this is what i would say to the international community you know hold india accountable to being a democracy number 1 2 pay attention that you have the two nuclear armed countries mm-hmm. at conflict and third that this that we need a, a just political resolution to this conflict and the kashmiris need to be able to express themselves and what they want Farah, let's move to your activism locally as well. You were involved in Indivisible Westchester County. Again, for those who don't know, it's a grassroots organization that promotes um, progressive advocacy, mm-hmm. does progressive advocacy and electoral work. How has the progressive movement evolved since 2016 elections? That's when you joined Indivisible. That's That right. was probably the trigger for you. Mm-hmm. And what is the role of Muslim community within the broader realm of progressive movements in the United States mm-hmm. right now. So I got involved with Indivisible Westchester in early 2017 and the whole Indivisible mm-hmm. Indivisible movement started after the the election of 2016. And you know that election really changed my perspective. Whereas I've always paid attention to democracy, human rights, but it really was mostly our foreign relations kashmir south asia other parts of the world and i've been engaged this really turned me around and made me focus at the local level and i realized i need to pay attention to what's happening in my own backyard because that's where democracy starts and it mm. builds up from there so indivisible westchester has grown since then we've been very active we work with other indivisible groups within westchester 
we really try to get people to vote, <laughs> to, edu- to educate them on the issues. You know, as Americans, we have this privilege to vote. And our biggest challenge is getting people to the polls. Why do you think that's such a big challenge? To me, it's so logical, right? Mm-hmm. Just if you have a voice, make it heard, like just yeah. go and vote. Why is right. it so difficult to convince people to just come out and do that? I know. I think that so many people are disillusioned and they think it doesn't make a difference. And I feel so strongly about it. And, and so do my colleagues. And I know for me, one of the reasons I feel so strongly about it is because my family is from a place where their voice is not heard. Mm. You know, so coming here and we, I really don't take for granted the freedoms we have here, you know, and I will fight to defend those for myself and for other people. And so I think that's just people feel like it doesn't make a difference. And that's why. And how has the Muslim community's involvement evolved or changed over time? Have you seen that? Or is it like there, there isn't mm-hmm. much change there? Well, I haven't really been involved in like the Muslim community and, and political activism hmm. until recently I got connected with some groups in, in the New York area that are very active, that are Muslim, progressive Muslim groups like Muslims for Progress, shout hmm. out to them on Long Island. And so I can't really speak to how they've evolved, but I know just from this one group that they are super engaged and they understand the importance and the value of being involved in in civics on all levels, not just for Muslims or on behalf of Muslim communities, but in their own communities as Americans. And I, I see, so I think that more people are understanding the importance of that engagement as Americans who happen to be of the Muslim faith or, you know, from a Muslim culture. And I think that's great. So we have another Democratic presidential debate coming up mm-hmm. on Thursday. Yeah. Are you excited? Do you have any favorites? Um, I don't have favorites. Oh, yet. you don't? No, I'm going to um, pay attention and, and make, I, I mean, I do, fa- I, okay, I do have some that I favor, but okay. I don't have favorites. Um, so... You know, I like what Warren says. I like what Sanders says. Kamala Harris. We'll see. And you're also a podcaster. You host uh, Westchester Indivisible podcast. How has that experience been like? Like this is, I'm assuming, your first podcast, right? It's my first podcast. I'm part of a team. Um, The main host is actually um, my colleague, Shannon Powell. And I'm on the podcast with her for for some of the podcasts. And... It's it's cool. It's different. It's interesting. You know, it's so interesting because what I've seen with podcasting, it's it's being used as a tool to promote human rights issues mm-hmm. and to promote advocacy. And it has evolved into something much bigger than what it started out to be. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's fascinating to see how the podcasting realm is changing over time and it's becoming more inclusive, more diverse. Well, before we had podcasts, we had radio, right? Yeah. People listen to radio. And so maybe less people listen to radio, but they listen to podcasts because they're they're focused. You can choose what topic you want to listen to and you can listen to it whenever it's convenient for you. That's true. So Farah, if you were to describe America in a word or a sentence, how would you do that? I would say that America is a country that has a possibility to live up to its ideals. That we have the possibility here to actually live up to the to the ideals of America 
as a democracy, as a place where anybody can have a chance, you know, where as long as you work hard and you believe in the dream, you can make it. We know that's not true for everybody, but we can work towards that. And you have a great example at home, your dad. Mm -hmm. Your family, in fact, your dad's story is quintessentially American. Yes. How he made it big here through hard work, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Yes, it is. And I worry that that is not ex doesn't exist as much as it did. And I want it to exist for other people. Why, why do you think it doesn't exist anymore or as much as it used to? I don't know. Everything seems harder now. In what ways? It seems like it's harder for people to to move ahead, to lift themselves up and to, I don't know, have that confidence. And I, I could be wrong. But just um, maybe because there's so much negativity right now mm. in the country that I feel the positive aspects are not being uh, reinforced and there's so much negativity being put out there. And what it means to be American, what it means to immigrate here, it's, it's being, everything is sort of being painted in a very negative light. And this ideal of coming to this country, working hard. If you believe you're American, then you are American. I feel like that's being challenged. Yeah, because there's too much focus on on othering yes. uh, people who don't look like you yeah. or who don't speak the same language or maybe don't have the same accent, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. that's something that we hopefully have to move away from. Right. But thank you so much, Farah. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sadia. And thank you to all the listeners for listening. We have a Twitter. It's immigrantly underscore pod. We have an Instagram at immigrantly pod. You can check our website, immigrantlypod.com. Write to us if you have new ideas. If you know somebody who will be a great fit for our podcast, you can write to us at info at immigrantlypod.com. Until next time, when we have another inspiring story. In the meantime, stay connected. Stay connected.